Please take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Peter. After a two-week hiatus, we're back in the book of 1 Peter. We find ourselves where we left off last time in chapter 3, verse 1. Verses 1 through 7 will serve as the basis for this message. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow in whatever version you have handy. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I have a confession to make this morning as I begin this message. I am at heart a romantic. I must confess, sometimes I disguise myself and go to a chick flick and really enjoy a good romance story. In fact, my favorite movie in the last year is a love story, really. It's a great story. Joseph Conrad, the great author wrote a book called Far From the Matting Crowd. It's a great story of love, and it seemed like it was going to go south several times, but in the end, it turned out beautifully. Don't you like stories which have a happy ending, where people appear to be headed in the direction of living happily ever after? Well, the reality is, far too few marriages have that as characteristic of them. Isn't it true? Statistics tell us that 41% of people who are married in the United States end up getting divorced. That's a large percentage, isn't it? I know there's probably not many people in the room, if any, whose lives have not been touched by divorce. Either you've gone through a divorce or a family member or a close friend has gone through divorce. This message is not about divorce, but The epidemic of divorce is indicative of the fact that people don't live usually happily ever after. Even the other 59% who don't get divorced, they sometimes live in misery in their marriages. So what we're going to look at today is God's prescription for a happy marriage. If I were to give a title to this message, I would entitle it, Happy Though Married. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's so rare that we find happiness in marriages, even within the church of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in the book of Psalm 119, verse 32, I run in the way of your commandments because you have set my heart free. So many people see the commandments of the Lord as being restrictive, not freeing. 
Jesus, though, says in the book of John, chapter 8, He said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Your Word, O God, is truth. What sets us free in any relationship? It's the truth of God's Word. The commandments of God that He's given to us. This passage, which I just read a moment ago, which we're going to look at in depth, is pretty clear. It's not hard to figure out what the emphasis of this passage is. Two things. One, wives, submit to your husbands if you have the hope of having a happy marriage from God's perspective. Men, live with your wives in an understanding way. And as we look at this, this is what we would call an ethical message. Ethics have to do with the way we treat each other. And the Christian ethic stands out above all other ethics. It's a reciprocal ethic. There is a responsibility that wives have and a corresponding responsibility that husbands have. It's for us. So if you're here and you're a wife, don't poke your husband in the ribs if he's with you when I start talking about the husbands and vice versa. This is for you to consider if you are a female, what the Bible has to say about your role in marriage. If you're a male, what he has to say about the husband's role in marriage. Let's look at this idea of submissiveness. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. This word submissive is a word which has a wide range of meanings. At its most basic level, it is a military term which is used to describe somebody who lines up under someone who is an authority over that person. So, the idea of being submissive is the idea of being under someone else's authority. But also, and I think this really has relevance to the role of a wife in submission in the context of a Christian marriage, it carries with it the idea of consciously choosing to put oneself at the disposal of another. Another way of saying it, William Barclay says this about it, that this matter of submissiveness as far as God is concerned, in the marriage relationship, a wife to her husband is the idea of selfless voluntarism. Voluntarily submitting yourself or giving yourself to be a servant, a selfless person. Now, that's huge. It's a huge responsibility. But it's also huge for husbands when they're to live with wives in an understanding way. It's not because women are impossible to understand. And I know you ladies think your husband doesn't have a clue, and in most cases you're right. Let me give you an illustration of this. I read about a man. He'd been married ten years. He was coming up on his tenth anniversary, and he always struck out when it came to getting the right gift for his wife. So finally he humbled himself and he went to his secretary at work, and he said, can you tell me what you think would be a good gift for my wife? You know my wife, and you know me. What would be a good gift? And she said, well, for starters, what I would suggest is you get a beautiful bouquet of flowers. Don't go to Albertsons to get them. Go to a flower shop, you cheapskate. And then also, give a beautiful box of candy to your wives. Don't go to Walmart to get it. Go to some Russell Stover store. Some, I know you can buy Russell Stovers there and save a dollar, but go and go all the way, man. That's what she said to him. 
And she said, in addition to that, I would advise you to take the afternoon off after you, you have lunch, go to the public library, look into some romantic poetry, find a short one, memorize it, and go home. And when you ring the bell, don't go through the garage like you usually do. Ring the bell. She'll come to the door and you greet her with a smile and quote that romantic poem to her. Well, he was feeling really good about himself because he did as she said. He had gone to the library. He'd actually memorized this poem. So he comes, he rings the doorbell. His wife answers the door. She has their infant son under her arm, and she's got the garage door opener in her hand. And she looked at him in stunned disbelief. She didn't expect to see him. And then he, she burst into tears and he said, what's the matter? She said, what's the matter? The garage door opener broke today. Your son is sick and he's running off from both ends. And in addition to that, the dog ate the remote control. And here you show up in the middle of the day, drunk. Well... This man was dumbfounded by his wife's response. He didn't understand that she had been asking him for days, if not weeks, to do something about the garage door opener before it broke. And she became a prisoner in the house because she couldn't get the car out of the garage. Well, we men have a responsibility to live in an understanding way with our wives. So let's dig in to this text of Scripture. And let's ask the Lord, whether you're a man or a woman, to give us discernment about our roles in marriage. And the whole concept of submission, lest I forget it, this idea of submission in no way is a commentary on the inferiority of wives to men. This is not about status, this teaching. This is about order in the home. It's about function in the home. God has ordained that husbands lead in the marriage. Women willingly follow in the marriage. In the matter of submission, this matter is a matter of disposition more than it is action. It's a commitment on the part of the wife to follow the leadership of her husband. Unless the husband asks her or calls her to do something that's against the will of God, that is sinful. So if your husband tells you to go and steal something with him, say, I can't do it. Or to get drunk with him, you say, I cannot do it. Or to work with him in developing some kind of deceptive scheme to scam people, you don't do it. You follow the leadership of your husband in submission as far as it goes without committing a sin. Okay, look at the text again. In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, the choice of The description of the sphere of submission is important to your own husband. And that carries with it the idea of security which comes into a relationship when a wife and a husband are committed to each other. The exclusiveness of the relationship. 
and the intimacy which comes in the freedom of such a relationship. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the Word... Now, let's pause here just a moment. It's clear from what Peter writes that there were many in the audience that he was targeting who were believing wives married to unbelieving husbands because the husbands of these wives who were addressed here, many of them, not necessarily all of them, but many if not most of them, were men who had heard the gospel and guess who they had heard it from? From their believing wives. Do you recall when you came to know Jesus Christ? If you know Jesus, do you remember when you asked Jesus Christ to not simply forgive you of your sin, but to come into your life and you gave Him full control as Lord of your life? Do you remember that? I remember my own experience. I was just a boy. Just a boy. Some people would say a child that age could not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is simple to understand. Christ died for our sins. I need to know that Jesus, the God-man, loved me enough to substitute Himself for me and pay the price for my sin, my disobedience. You say, how much sin can a child do? The Bible says, if I break only one of the commandments of God, I'm guilty of having broken them all. So it doesn't take more than one sin. I knew I had stolen things before from my dad. I got caught too. Got a spanking for it. It was good for me. I knew that I had lied to my parents. I had disobeyed my parents. I knew all those things about me. I was a sinner. Christ died for my sins. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day. When I came to know Jesus Christ, the first thing I did, it was on a Sunday that I came to know Jesus. It was in January of 1958. I went to school. My teacher was named Pat Tedder, Mrs. Tedder. I loved her so much. And I could not wait to go to Mrs. Tedder. I knew nothing and didn't even occur to me as a grade school boy whether she went to church or not, whether she had any connection to Christ at all. It didn't even occur to me. But what I wanted to do, I went to her and I told her, Miss Tedder, guess what happened to me yesterday? I asked Jesus into my life. And she was very kind. She kind of patted me on the head and said, Mike, that's wonderful. And I guess she meant it. I think she meant it. She was such a sincere an excellent teacher of me. But I wanted to tell someone about it. Think about these women living in the void, in the vacuum of a godless pagan world. These women, probably majority, if not virtually all of them, came not from a Jewish background, but they came from a non-Jewish, what the Bible calls Gentile background. And their world was a world of many gods and goddesses. There were many, many gods that they could choose from, many temples in the cities or towns in which they lived. They could go to the shrines of those gods and worship. And all of a sudden, in that darkness, light burst into their lives. And where there was death internally, life came into them. They were born again by the living and abiding Word of God. And so what did they do? They probably could not wait to get home to share the gospel with their unbelieving husbands. But their plight was very bad. Because in the pagan world of Jesus' time, a woman belonged to her husband. She was literally his property. And he could be done with her just like that. Just because he got tired of her. 
just because she didn't cook his food the way he wanted it to be cooked or do this in the area of taking care of the children or whatever. It didn't take anything. He could just dismiss her with a certificate that he wrote. Wouldn't even have to go to a court of law. The only thing that was binding upon such a man was that he give the dowry, the bride price, back to the father of that woman whom he divorced. One of the philosophers of the day in Peter's day, Roman philosopher, pagan philosopher, said this about men who were married. If you catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you may kill her with impunity and without a trial. Can you imagine living in such a world? Unbelievable. And these women who had come to Christ were married to men, and they had adopted, by necessity, they had adopted His God when they married. And therefore, to turn one's back on the God of your husband, even though he might not be that much of a devotee or disciple of that God, was embarrassing for him, and you would pay for it. And so, here we see the background against which this command is set. So that even if any of them are disobedient, the word disobedient is not the normal word that's used in the New Testament for disobedience. This is a word which means unpersuaded. Who had been trying to persuade these unbelieving husbands? The believing wives had. And it had not worked. In fact, it might have cost them. We don't know exactly what it would have cost them, but it might have cost them great stress in their lives. These men who were disobedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this command is they be submissive to their own husbands so that they, that is the husbands who are unbelieving, may be one without a word. Their stubborn, persistently antagonistic attitude toward the gospel would be broken down not by any further verbalization of the gospel. And we know we have to hear the gospel to be saved. The Bible poses the question in Romans chapter 10, how can they be saved if they don't hear? How can they hear without a preacher? There has to be the communication of the gospel. And we know in the book of First Peter already how the passage has told us that we are all born again by the living and abiding Word of God. We have to hear the Word. But there had come a time in the lives of these, uh, these believing women married to unbelieving, resistant husbands to preach no more. Go from being a verbal witness to being a visual witness is what Peter said. And this will be true of you today. Undoubtedly, there are several women here in this congregation who love Jesus and you're married to an unbeliever. And he's not just neutral. He's antagonistic. It has not been too many days ago, really, that I had a woman who was planning to be baptized. And I received a call from her. I was not in the office when the call came, but I received a call from this woman. And I knew in my heart what had happened. The Lord kind of gave me a heads up before I called her back. And I called her back, and I could tell she was really nervous as she talked to me. She said, Pastor, I'm not going to be baptized tomorrow night. And she went on to explain why. Because her husband, who is nominally religious, he's not a man who practices his religion. 
he's only religious in name only. But he was so upset to hear that she'd given her heart to Christ because of the embarrassment it would cause him with his family and friends that she had left the faith to follow Jesus. This happens today. Not to the degree that it happened then in terms of the severity of the way in which women were exposed because of the status in the society, but still it happens. It's sad to me. When a married man or woman is unequally yoked to an unbeliever and the difficulty that creates, that's why the Bible is so insistent upon people when they're considering life's mate to ask God and insist upon themselves finding a person who knows the Lord. There's enough work done there to be done, isn't there? There's work to be done when you have a Christian mate, whether it's a male or a female. There's work to be done. And God gives us indication how that work can be accomplished in the context of a marriage for a happy marriage. Wives have to be submissive to their husbands as to the Lord. And husbands have to live with their wives in an understanding way and love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. Now look at the behavior of the wives that's prescribed here by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Peter and to us today as they observe, speaking of these unbelieving husbands, the word translated observe is a word which carries with it the idea of not just casually watching but really studying one's wife. Remember, all of a sudden, these wives took to heart what is taught here, and they quit preaching. And that was curious. And the unbelieving husband would have wondered, what's going on? And day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, maybe even year in, year out, they would observe the chase. That means the moral Behavior And the respectful behavior, not respectful to them, although that would have been part of it, but the idea is the fear of God. If you look at it in the original language, it actually has a prepositional phrase, in fear, in phobo. We get our word phobia from the word phobos or phobo. In fear, fear not of the husband, but fear of the Lord. The life that is lived in the fear of God is the life that is obedient to the Lord. And it changes the whole atmosphere of one's home. So one person in a home who knows Jesus brings Jesus into that home. And Christ does marvelous things to change the thinking of unbelieving spouses as we live in that kind of relationship, a God-fearing relationship. In verse 3, Peter goes on to say, "...and let not your adornment be merely external." In other words... You wives, don't spend all your time adorning the external part of who you are. And this was common in this day. They came out of this culture, this background. And he goes on to describe ways that they adorn themselves. Braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. They were putting all their eggs in the external basket in terms of their appearance wanting to charm their husbands that way. The braiding of the hair, believe it or not, in this day there were professional hairdressers. And women would go to their hairdresser and part of the dressing of the hair, as the historians tell us, 
usually the women would let their hair grow long and they would put it up high on their head. And then the hairdresser would take gold hairnets that were brought by the woman getting her hair done and put them in their hair. And then the women also wouldn't limit their jewelry to their hair. They would wear bracelets of gold, anklets of gold, and putting on dresses. And they didn't wear slacks like women do today. And so the idea is not that they weren't wearing dresses. They were wearing dresses, but the idea is they wore lots of dresses in the course of one day. And they spent a lot of energy braiding, wearing, putting on. All those words suggest a lot of energy expended and consequently and logically a lot of time invested in working on the outside appearance. Now, let me stop just a moment. As a man, I'm a visual man. And every man is responsive to women largely based on the way the woman looks. So we as men appreciate you women taking good care of yourself on the outside. But if you only take care of yourself on the outside, you miss something very important, extremely important. In fact, the external pales in comparison to what God wants to be done on the inside. Look at verse 4. But let it be, that is your adornment. And the word adornment is the word cosmos. Does that word ring a bell to you, cosmos? It's the Greek word for world. So why in the world does he choose the word world to describe adornment? It's the word from which we get our word cosmetics, by the way. Cosmos, cosmetics. Why does he do this? Because the basic idea of Cosmos is order. And the universe is ordered, isn't it? It reflects the nature of God. God is a God of order. And when women were doing these things, they were ordering their external appearance. And he tells these believing women, but let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, I've asked the Lord to help me with this whole message. Because it's somewhat ticklish, as you might see. But this part is the key, ladies. This verse in particular is that which makes it possible for you to voluntarily live a life of selflessness in relationship to your husband. This is the key. This is how it's done. So listen carefully. Let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart. Not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, 8, the prophet Samuel's looking for the first king of Israel. He goes to the house of Jesse. He looks at seven of his sons, and the first couple are described as just handsome. They were stud muffins. Now, I just made that up. Not really. I've heard it somewhere. I mean, they were good-looking guys. And when the prophet, who was a man of God, the Bible says about him that the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. He was such a, an effective prophet. And he sees the first one, and he said, this must be the one. The Spirit of God says, no, he's not the one. He looks at the second one, who was also handsome. This must be the one. He's not the one. He goes all the way to the end. Seven, the Spirit of God says, he's not one of these guys. And so he turns to Jesse and he says, do you have another son? He says, yes, I do. He's just a little lowly shepherd boy, though. 
He's out in the fields keeping the sheep. You know who he was? David. Who, according to Scripture, got the genes his first two brothers got. He was a good-looking guy, too. But the Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, 8, the Spirit said to Samuel as he was trying to discern who the king would be, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Hey, there's a lesson for you men. We are drawn to the appearance of a woman, in most cases, first and foremost. But you're very shallow if that's all you're looking for in a woman. And you are very foolish if you choose a woman simply based upon her appearance. You need to look for a woman. If you're a godly man, you're single, you're looking for a wife, ask God to give you a woman who has cultivated the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable. Now, no offense, ladies, but the outer person is wasting away. But the good news for male and female is the inner man, the inner person is renewed day by day. If we concentrate, whether we're female or male, on the hidden person of the heart and make that the consistent habit of our lives, when we get to be to that point where no heads are turned, if you're a woman, and no women are impressed by you, if you're a man, because of your appearance, then it doesn't devastate you. and You don't have to waste a lot of energy. In fact, pour your energy from the get-go. This day may be the get-go for some of you. Pour your energy into developing the hidden person of the heart because it's imperishable in its quality. Its quality is that of gentleness and quiet spirit. You might say, okay, Pastor, you're just trying to tell us, women, to just be quiet and don't have a word to say and just be meek and all that. Well, I'm not telling you that. That's what the Bible says. This is not just for women, though. It's for Jesus. Jesus Himself describes Himself as being gentle and humble in heart. This is a picture of Jesus, as we're going to see in just a moment. And don't be loud. You don't have to make yourself known. Was Jesus loud? Do you know of any time in His public ministry that He got loud? There's only one recorded instance where Jesus spoke loudly. It's in John chapter 7. One out of three and a half years of public ministry, only one time that He got loud. And the Bible says about Him that He does not cry out in the street. He does not yell and scream like so many of the prophets must have done to draw attention to Himself. That's not Jesus. And it's not Jesus to rely upon external things to draw attention to yourself. Jesus resisted drawing attention to Himself. You may recall, it's in that same chapter of John, chapter 7, his brothers, half-brothers they would be, were talking to Jesus. He says, there's a great festival coming. It's the festival of tabernacles. And everybody you know Jesus by law, every male, 20 years of age or older, and a lot of his family, they'll be going to Jerusalem. It'll be packed with people. It's the perfect time to come out, Jesus, and let the people know you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, any time is good for you. I'm not going. And so they went their way. Jesus retired from the limelight. 
If Christ is in us, we will be retiring. We will not be people who are thrusting ourselves into the middle to be the center of attention. We will not do that. And so, as we see here, the hidden person, the heart, is one who is like Jesus, gentle and quiet in spirit. Now, this is the part that's wonderful. It's all wonderful. It's God's Word. But this part, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, what's that all about? Well, go back to chapter 2. We have studied this some weeks ago. Chapter 2, verse 4. And coming to Him, this is speaking of Jesus. You can read the context. As to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and what? Precious in the sight of God. The identical wording used there of Jesus is used here. And here is what doesn't appear. And I am taking... The liberty, and it's not liberty, it's a liberty the Spirit's giving me, I believe, to point something out. Most of the translations, if not all of them that I have consulted, the word spirit here is with a little s. But it very well can be, and I believe it is, a capital S. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. Among the characteristics of the Holy Spirit is that of gentleness. Quality, imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet Holy Spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Doesn't it stand to reason that if Jesus, the Son of God, is precious to the Father, so the Holy Spirit of God is precious to the Father? Does that make sense to you? And so, ladies and men, the way that you can live a selfless life, you can't do it. It's impossible. If we were to go to Ephesians 5, which is the most extensive description of husband-wife relationships in the New Testament, what we would discover is just before the Commandments are given. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. There is a command that is the overarching and empowering command. It says, be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so, the hidden person of the heart, be filled with the Spirit. The Bible says in the book of Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and do not make provision for your selfishness, your flesh. And the word put on is a word that's used here in this text. The word described putting on, referring to dresses. Clothe yourselves in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, take control of my life. I want people to see you when they see me. Jesus, gentle, and the word gentle is used many times by Jesus Himself. He says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The word gentle was used to describe a stallion, wild, wild stallion, who had been captured and broken and still had all the power that that stallion had prior to being broken. But that powerful animal was under the control of whoever rode that stallion and held the reins. To the mouth of that stallion. This is what you as a woman are called to be. A powerful person. Powerful in Christ. You are not in any way demeaned by what God says. Actually, you are elevated. The world demeans you. When you buy the lie of the world, which is under the control of the devil, that it's your external being that's most important. When in reality, it's your inner person of the heart where Christ rules and reigns in your life. 
The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4, 8, physical exercise is of some value, but godliness is profitable for all things, including physical exercise. There's nothing wrong with physical exercise. It's something we do to keep the temple that God has chosen in us to live in. Our bodies are a temple of the Spirit. We're to take care of our bodies. But let's go one step further. What is profitable for all things and for all time? If you're going to look at 1 Timothy 4.8, right, Paul writes to Timothy, for the present time and for the life to come forever. Ladies, this is God's call to you. And then Peter gives some illustrations For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. How did they adorn adorn themselves? By cultivating the hidden person of the heart, being submissive to their own husbands. The word hoped in is the word that is used that we read together from Isaiah 40, 31, where the Bible says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word translated wait by the New American Standard is the word hoped in. It's the same word that's used here. Hope. And the hope is in the promise of God. As Mike read about how the promises of God can be claimed by us. They're given to us as children of God. And we claim the promises of God. And then we have hope as a result. Right, Mike? Isn't that what you read? I was listening and it's awesome when she shared. It was awesome. It fits right here. We claim the promises of God. These women hoped in God. And they needed to. Because of their condition, they were living with an unbelieving man. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Not with a capital L. He's my head. He's my leader in the family. You become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. She's to be fearful of God, but not fearful of man, including her husband. He can threaten her with divorce. He can threaten her in other ways. But the Lord is her Lord. And He is the one whom she follows without being afraid. The Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. But she who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Trust in the Lord. Fear the Lord. And now to the men. You might say, wow, Mike, you spent 35 minutes talking about the women and only... Going to have five minutes to talk about the men. And why does the Word of God give six verses to the women and one to the men? Now remember the context. These women needed to be protected because of the condition of their home. And God was giving instruction. And this is important to understand. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. Understanding is a word, or understanding way really is, know your wives is what it is. Know them. And if you know biblical jargon, you know that had to do in part, if not in large part, with knowing her in intimacy in the sexual relationship and marriage. But it's much more than that here. It would cover a wide range of knowledge of your wife. You man, and I man, We have a responsibility as married men to devote a large part of our time to learning who our wives are. This is why in the Old Testament, the Bible says, if Israel is called to war, every man who has been married less than one year is not to go. 
so that he can get to know his wife. That'd be great, wouldn't it, guys? If you had a year-long honeymoon, it'd be awesome. Might get tiresome for your wife. She'd be glad when you went off to war. But nevertheless, <laughs> it would be good to have that time. And that was part of the cultural context in the scriptural, which is more important than culture. But live with your wives in an understanding way. As with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman. Now, remember what I said earlier. Women are not inferior intellectually. In fact, the statistics show, the data shows, what? Women are, as a group, more intelligent. Men, live with it. Get over it. And then also, morally, women are typically more morally upright than we men are as a group. So what is the weaker a reference to? It's probably referring to, at this day and time, especially weaker physically, but this is what I think it's really referring to. This satisfies me, not because I need to be satisfied. It doesn't really matter what my preferences are. It's what does the Bible say. This is God's Word. But this is very plausible. It makes sense to me. Weaker vessel in this sense. Remember, if a Christian woman was married, what is her responsibility in marriage? To be submissive to her husband. Did that put her in a place of vulnerability? Certainly it did. Does that take a lot of faith on the part of a woman to submit to her husband? You bet. It takes a lot of faith. And so instructing the husbands, what does the Lord say? And He says this to us, men. He says, look, your wife is human like you. She's not going to be submissive all the time, but that's what she knows her responsibility to be. And she's learning how to be that. So give her some slack. Live with her in an understanding way. And the word translated live literally means make a home for her. That's what it literally means. We, in the past at least, this is not so much true anymore. It's old school now in most people's minds. But we used to talk about women being homemakers. Guess who God's idea of homemaker is? It's you men. It's us men who are married. And we make a home for our women and our children By what? Living with our wives in an understanding way. And not lording it over them, but appreciating the willingness that God has placed in their hearts and their cooperation with what God says in His Word to live in that kind of relationship. And grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Show respect to your wife. We as men are the recipients of the respect of our wives as they humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, and also as they are obedient to God. But our wives are on a par with us. Their equality within the church of Jesus Christ and in the home, there's equality. We are saved by the same grace, by the same person, Jesus Christ, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, this is the last thing I'm going to share, but it's critically important. Men, Do you see God answering your prayers? I'm talking about married men. Those of you who aren't married, just tuck this away for future reference. Is God in the habit of responding to your prayers? May I tell you, if He's not, it's likely because you're not living with your wife in an understanding way. And you need to learn from Him and from her. We're going to talk about this next week. How to understand one another how 
to live this way in your marriage. And watch God do a miracle in your life and give you the capacity to be happy though married and to live happily ever after, really. That would be our hope and our dream for you. I believe that's God's will for us. If we follow His will, we'll discover it. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the privilege of being here today and looking into this very instructive passage of Scripture. And We pray for the men and women who are married here today that all of us will take this to heart and will commit ourselves to being this kind of spouse under Your authority, Lord, and in Your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.